March the 16th, 2014, lecture discussion number 147 on the Book of Romans. And uh, today is um, going to be, well, first a few things I have to say. Uh, people have asked me how much snow I got um, at my house the other day and yesterday, actually, right? I had 17 inches in the driveway. I measured it myself. So those of you on the Internet... Uh, who are looking forward to visiting in March, I would suggest that you uh, make other plans. There's nothing to see, and uh, we are enduring another one of these kinds of marches in April's, I'm sure. Uh, Also, really quickly for those of you on the Internet as well, this is another interlude. I'm trying to take a a breather before I get to for almost everybody to kind of digest all this information before I get to the... uh, uh, the necessary subjects. By necessary subjects, I mean time dilation, uh, which is, of course, uh, related to Einstein's uh, theory on general relativity. And yes, we're really going to do Einstein's uh, positions on relativity. Uh, we're going to do a shifted light uh, spectrum, redshift and blue shift, and ultimately um, uh, we'll spend a great deal of time on the uh, constancy of the speed of light with respect to time. Time dilation means essentially um, time stretching or uh, time being affected um, by observation and position. The locations of things and the movement of things and the location of the observer and the movement of the observer. So knowing that there is motion everywhere and the the effect that it has on time uh, is a very important uh, physical uh, understanding or physics understanding, if you will. So that's going to happen uh, next week. That's my plan. But for today, just trying to kind of collect everybody uh, so that we're all um, up to speed as much as possible on these preliminary subjects. And so it may not seem like today that uh, we're in um, in the book of Romans, our little current sojourn here into the conflicts of evolutionary concepts and philosophy may not seem like it's applicable to Romans, but it is, in fact, uh, applicable. It, it is, there is no better book to discuss when you're in evolutionary philosophy as it contrasts with the Bible uh, than the book of Romans. Um, it is absolutely attached to Romans, this subject. And I, I argue all the time, I I easily take the position without any kind of second thought that the book of Romans is in fact where the great or the primary battlefield is in this in this conflict, and if you wish to call it that, where the war, so to speak, is fought. The Genesis not, notwithstanding, obviously Genesis is a great place of engagement as well and deservedly receives its due, but we're neglecting the book of Romans, and the book of Romans is... Amazing. Uh, And I don't want to neglect Romans. That's why I put it in here in the fact that it also came up in our current society. This made a perfect fit for me. Romans contains the complaints and the accusations of those who reject and mock God. Those who hate their creator and denounce him and call him the author of evil. Romans has their, their words. Romans contains their argument. It's literally word for word what they say. And Romans also contains God's responses to the evolutionary atheists' repeated arguments and rationalized excuses. Romans describes their eventual destiny and condition. And you would think that they would want to know 
that they're quoted in there. Perfectly. All you, you can read what they say on television, open the book of Romans, and it is literally word for word. I can't rep- repeat that enough. Do they know it? They don't. I've yet to meet an evolutionary atheist who has even read Romans. When I read one and say, you know, your argument that you raise is in Romans, word for word. Did you know that? And God responds to it. Did you know that? No. Aren't you interested in reading it? No. I've yet to met a single evolutionary atheist who has read Romans or who knows what is said there or who even has any idea that the argument that he just expounded or espoused is exactly there. But then I have a very narrow, very small social footprint. I don't meet very many people. I do that by design. I am socially awkward. I know that. I consider it a strength. So there may be some evolutionary atheists who are aware that their primary arguments philosophically are word for word in the book of Romans. I just haven't met one yet. And that surprises me. You see, because I'm, I'm really interested in monistic uh, f- uh, thinking. I want to know what they think. I'm fascinated by it. I think it's critical that I understand it. So I spend a lot of time uh, researching it. I want to know what they believe and how they reason and how they progress to their conclusions, why they believe what they believe, why they choose to believe what they believe. I take their classes. I'm doing it now. I read their books, their monographs. I spend a great deal of time on it. And, and But I see no interest in the reverse because, beyond the very rare occasional uh, testimony that I might come across. But I've never met one. I'm, I read about them. I just don't ha- have never come across one personally. And I would suppose them to be motivated to be biblically informed. Uh, I would suppose them to be fluent somewhat in scriptural Intricacies, but I only find the opposite. Astonishing levels of biblical illiteracy is what I find every time. It is mathematically difficult to be as wrong as they are about what the Bible says. It is very hard to do what they do. Their their utter, complete lack of even elementary scriptural truths is something that we it has to be explained. It's a phenomenon. These are normally when you meet them, you would think that they were they're, they're, you would think they're intelligent. They get good grades. They went to college. They have vocabularies that, that are certainly uh, complex. How is it possible that the evolutionists are so devoid of understanding of basic? Biblical meanings are any biblical meanings. That has to be explained. Because, as I said, the reverse isn't true. I can talk to them. They would not know if I didn't divulge it that I was not an evolutionist. I am so good at them. I don't do it very often here because there's no point. But they have no idea what I believe at all. I find that fascinating. 
the simple-mindedness of their understanding, and that's a generous use of the word understanding. Uh, They don't have any understanding, but the what understanding they do have is very simple-minded. And and their simple-mindedness is only exceeded by their self-assuredness. What I mean by that is they have a self-certainty or a self-confidence that they, they know something about what Christians believe, what the Bible says. That they have a coherent, coherent representation of biblical truths. When in fact they have nothing of the sort. Nothing correct. Absolute perfect wrong. Again, that, that's hard to accomplish. It's a mathematical issue. And I, and I, every time I, I get into this discussion and I keep reading and I, surely I think, uh, eventually, some monistic atheist could represent correctly what the Bible teaches. Even I'll, my threshold's really small. Just get something right. And I have yet witnessed it. And, and you may argue, well, this is willful, intentional misrepresentation, deception. It is a willful lie. And I can see that possibility in theory. But again, so far I've not personally come across an example. So far in my experience, the only thing I've come in contact with is total wrong. Bill Nye, this debate with Ken Ham, Bill Nye being the most uh, latest example, if you will. No idea what Ken Ham believed or why or what the Bible says. No idea at all. Cannot articulate it. Will get it wrong every time he tries. And uh, again, I concede, I I live a sheltered existence. I'm in Alaska, after all. However, it is not a coincidence that what I am seeing consistently, this condition that I'm describing, is described exactly as that in Romans 1.26 through 32. In Romans 1.18.25. Romans 1, 18-25 describes the evidences that God has given all men and, that, and says that those evidence will be rejected and hated. And that is exactly what I find. Every evidence that God is the creator that he says he is, is rejected and hated. Romans 9, 14-33 is God's summary of the, if you will, mankind's logic. I, again, that's a generous word. Uh, for what it is that mankind does, but God has a summary of mankind's excuse, or the evolutionary excuse, if you will. And we should read some of Romans 9. We will here in a minute. It's a very, very complicated passage, one that connects to Genesis 15 and Matthew 4 and Matthew 26, 36 through 39. You'll recognize that as the the burning lamp or the, the lamp and the burnt smoking furnace in Genesis 15 going through this this God's love and God's justice having an agreement, if you will, going through the separated animals coming to a an agreement, so the, there you have these two omniscient and omnipotent powers that is God, his mercy and love and his uh, justice and holiness coming to a solution. In Genesis 15, Matthew 4 is uh, the testing that proves that Christ is in fact God and the, and the lies that Satan has had for thousands of years being given to him and how he rebuts them. And Satan, I believe, at that point did not know that that was God in front of him, 
but figured it out quickly. He, he moves fast. And then Matthew 26, 36 through 39 is the cup, which again is just exactly like Genesis 15. That is the mercy of God, the love of God, and the justice of God dealing with the cup. Um, and, and so all of that is about the om, omniscience of God and the responsibility of mankind, or if you will, the free will of mankind. Romans 9 is going to be about the uh, God's infinite mercy reconciled with God's infinite holiness. And so it is, if for lack of a better term, it is God responding. And that's a hard way to put it because God does not respond. He's omniscient, but uh, humanistically, God responding to the oft-repeated uh, uh, accusation that he is the source of evil and therefore cannot judge sin. And what we're having all the time now, ever since this debate, is over and over again that very argument given to us uh, all over the television, all over, all over radio, all over the Internet. God is the source of evil and therefore he cannot judge sin. And so let me read it to you. Because here it is, Romans 9, and I'll just read 18 through 21. And again, 18 through 21, very complicated. Spend time studying it so that you don't end up off track. Uh, Therefore, he, that's God, has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. That's a reference to the Pharaoh, by the way. Specifically, also a general reference. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who will say to God, why does he still find fault? What is finding fault? It's a judgment. If it is true, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. Man will say to God then, I'll change it that way for you, why does he still judge? How do you reconcile 18 with 19 is the question. For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to God who formed it, why have you made me like this? Why have you made me? I'm sorry. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Now, there are many themes here that we've got to collect to understand that. Uh, And people will draw the wrong conclusion, and I don't want you to do that. Um, I have to get the Pharaoh. I have to get Jacob. I have to get Esau. You'll see Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Is he talking about them individually or the nations that uh, they represent? But today, just note the obvious. Men will accuse God of being unjust and unqualified to judge him. That is what that means. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God judge? For who has resisted his will? That is saying, if God is the author of sin and I sin, then I am not at fault. God can't judge me. Men will accuse God of being unjust Unqualified to judge them, men will accuse God of causing their sin. And God's answer to that remark is this, or that accusation is this, that complaint. Does not the potter have power over the clay? Does the potter have power over the clay? Does God have the right to rule over you? Yes or no? 
The evolutionist is unanimously saying no. And God does not have the power to rule over me. Why does he say that? Well, most of them, when you get them down to it, will say that God is evil. Back to Pascal's wager, right? But God's answer, does not the potter have power over over the clay? The inferred answer to that question is yes, the potter does have power over the clay and can demand accountability. So there's an inference here, an implication. And the inference and the implication is, is if God has the power to judge, then what is the natural conclusion? Natural conclusion is, is that God is not the causing agent of sin. And what they say to him, you will say, why does he still fall, find fault for who has resisted his will? You will find God saying in response to that, the statement is not true. God is not the causing agent of sin. God's omniscience is not causation of sin. So we have to say, we have to determine who is the causing agent of sin. Raise your hands. Never raise your hand here. But if you were to raise your hand, but don't ever do it. But if you felt inclined, fight the inclination. Hypothetically, raise your hand. Do you know somebody who is a causing agent of sin? Please say yes, and I'll hand out mirrors. Anyway, I bring this up again because, again, as a consequence of this recent uh, debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye, the usual diatribes are free-flowing. And like I said, we're dragged back into Pascal's wager, which is why I've got to find time uh, in the coming weeks to revisit it. It's uh, Again, I did it uh, in a very shallow way, and it deserves more. But for today, as you know, our good friends from Hollywood have seen fit to weigh in to the discussion. And you know they're going to bring something very valuable and that is, of course, a sarcastic, facetious statement. Uh, and they are presenting their interpretation of Genesis 6, which is ridiculously complicated and impossible for them to get right in any spot at all, ever. But they're coming. And, and of course, Genesis 6 is tied to the subsequent noatic flood. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. This is a very, I uh, can't grasp the word right off the bat, but uh, I'm going to take a chance <laughs> and predict that the film that is coming out of Hollywood, uh, which is called what now? I'll make sure I get it right. Noah. Um, I'm going to predict that that's going to be stunningly unsound. It's going to be specious, defective, it'll be a mess. I can't wait. Just a guess. Uh, Hollywood's love of money, i.e. their desire to reap the Christian market, because they have discovered that the Christian market is about 90 million people in this country. And they're looking at that going, wow, yeah, cha-ching is exactly right. Maybe we can wing sucker those people, they... They seem to be, well, we think they're stupid. 
So how much energy will it be to get their money? It's happening every Sunday in most churches. That's, okay, it's not a joke. That's not a joke. <laughs> Probably absolutely accurate. But just a guess, Hollywood's love of money uh, and their desire to, uh, to fleece the Christians will not overcome their contempt for biblical precepts. They will not resist the urge to present a worldwide catastrophic flood as a fantasy of the superstitious. And so we can expect them to be right on cue. Uh, but just the uh, existence of the Noah film movie has elicited the usual nonsense. And so I'm grateful for the existence of the movie because I like to see. Now, that's a strange, I recognize that I'm weird, right? I got that. But I do want to know what they think all the time. Uh, I don't ever expect it to change, and it doesn't. But I want to see it come out. I want them to tell the truth about what they believe. That's what frustrates me about politicians and politics. If you're a communist, get out and say it. Wave a flag. I am a communist. I hate this country. Vote for me. Let's just do it. Why can't we do that? That seems really reasonable to me. I'm going to tax you into oblivion. Vote for me. Why can't that happen? But no, you, I'm going to get lots of mail now, aren't I? But still, I would like that to be the case. And so I really do like it when the evolutionary philosophers tell me, tell everyone what they really believe. As you know, I tell the story about being in a debate where I asked the evolutionist to explain to his children and his family that they would all cease to exist when they died. And that was a traumatic event for him to do that. He hadn't done it. How can you present this philosophy without that element to it? That's dishonest. I want you to say what you believe. Fortunately, he doesn't know where I am now. So, this Noah film and their their responses and their comments about it uh, is right in the wheelhouse of the purview of our current subjects. So, I felt obliged to respond to it today. That's why this is a breather or an interlude subject, but though it's still... Uh, headed towards time dilation. So, uh, again, no surprise that the same people have said the same things again. It is just, um, uh, today it's with a noetic flood context, which makes it, uh, I think, uh, valuable. So this week's example, let me give you the quotes of what uh, the evolutionary monists are saying. Here's a quote that I took off uh, the news media. So which... Uh, and by the way, it's consistent, so I'm sure that it is reasonably accurate, but I won't say for sure who said it, even though I think I know, um, but I didn't want to as- um, ascribe it without absolute authority. But here's the quote that is in the popular media. What kind of psychotic mass murderer kills everyone in the world just to get back at the few he's mad at? Now, that was said about God. At the Noetic Flood. Let me repeat it. What kind of psychotic mass murderer God kills everybody in a worldwide flood just to get back at the few he's mad at? Now, there is nothing biblically right with that sentence. Nothing. Absolutely zero. That's a perfect example of what they think. 
Here's God in, in that sentence is the psychotic mass murderer who floods the earth, killing all the, of humanity and animals with the exception of the occupants of the Ark of Noah and any species of, that did survive an aquatic cataclysm of that scope. Here's another quote. Quote, Christians are always complaining about the decline or the decay of our society. Well, maybe immorality results from Christians worshiping a God that drowns babies. Okay? I think these are relevatory. I think they're valuable to know. One more quote. Sixty percent of Americans believe the biblical account of a worldwide catastrophic flood. And sixty percent of Americans believe uh, in Noah's Ark. Therefore, 60% are stupid. Isn't life hard enough without making stupid stuff up out of thin air? And those are the latest contributions uh, from the same people who relentlessly declare that God is evil and Christians are fools. And obviously, there is money to be made in this constant repeating of these themes. And never underestimate the profit motive that is attached to the simple. And after all, there's a very large paying audience for the superficial. Feeble, cursory thinking appeals to the masses. And the masses will pay. Uh, that's just a fact. And for exhibits one and two, I submit um, Twitter and Bookface. And if that offends some of you, I'm sorry. <laughs> As you know, I'm not really sorry. Anyway, let's ask some obvious questions. Why Second Peter 3, 3 through 9? Why is the Noadic flood so loathed by the monists? Second Peter 3, 3 through 9 says that the Noadic flood will be loathed at the end of the age of the Gentiles. The Noadic flood is hated by evolutionary philosophy. Why? Why so much energy expended? This sneering, mocking, derisive hate. Especially when, geologically, there is water-generated mass mortality evidence everywhere throughout the world. I can go anywhere in the world and I will find geological evidences of water-generated mass mortality. As you know, fossils are the results of water-affected rapid burial. There are millions and millions and millions of diverse species that, were, that we can find in the strata that have died quickly and were buried quickly. And their bones uh, were permineralized in the fossilization process, and that is a waterborne or water-based process. So there is significant evidence of worldwide cataclysmic. I have a, a, a water-based event. Heaps of animals piled up in bone beds on every continent, and they're just some of them are just commingled. 
Others are not, like this event in China that we have found. This extremely large area that the Chinese have discovered with this tremendous amount of diverse species, all of them, all of them in some kind of water-based, volcanic-based, pyroclastic, if you will, event. Rapid burial, catastrophic, water-involved permineralization. And to repeat here for a second, there's only two choices. The media and academia dispute that. They, they only want you to take one choice. They say there isn't any other choice. But really, there is two choices. There's either uniformitarianism or catastrophic flood event that accounts for all of this geographical evidence. You have to look at the evidence and say, which is the one that is more likely? Uh, uniformitarianism, which is a vast amount of time, a uh, uniform process that has uh, somehow buried all of these animals and produced all of this strata, or is it a catastrophic flood event that uh, accounts for it? Uh, which of those, by the way, accounts for fossilization or permineralization, if you will, the fact that bones are replaced by minerals through a warm water process? But again, the contempt they have for that position is, well, it's hard to describe and it has to be explained. And just as an aside, just as there's two choices there, uniformitarianism processes and rates over vast amounts of time are very quick catastrophic flood event, rapid burial and permineralization resulting from that rapid burial there are also only two choices for the composition of the human body, or us, if you will. You get to choose one or two, or A or B, whatever you wish. You can either say that uh, substance dualism is correct, our body is two parts, one part spiritual, one part physical, or you can have the monistic materialism position that says, no, you, I, we, all humanity is simply a physical body only. So that's the two choices for the comp composition of the human being, if you will. It is not coincidental that the mon monists are also uniformitarianists, or that the dualists are catastrophic flood. It is just how it is. There are some exceptions, but generally this is a generalization, but generalizations have validity. That's why they are general. But by, uh, by the math, of extraordinary high percentage of people that think that we are composed of a spiritual uh, living soul and a physical body uh, are mostly catastrophic flood event. They look at the evidence of the geological strata and say this is water and volcanic, exactly as it is described in Scripture. The monistics... The people that believe that you will, you have no existence at all, you are just a physical device that eventually fails and you go into blackness, non-existence. You are already non-existent. You're just deluded into thinking you have existence. But eventually you will perish forever and ever, never to be heard or seen from again. Those monists, they all believe in uniformitarianism over vast amounts of time. I think that has to be explained. Why do we have this divergence? Now, there are, again, some exceptions, but very few. Consider another obvious question. Why this emphasis on physical death? Let me read the quote again, because it's, uh, it's striking. 
God is a psychic. Here, I'll just, I don't want to go back and read it. I'll just gener- try to get close to it. God is a psychotic mass murderer who drowns and kills babies. What is that? That is a focus, an emphasis on physical death. They have a definition of murder. What is the definition of murder to them? Because it's not God's definition. Definition of murder to a monist is killing someone physically. And that's horrible. Unless they do it. Then it's eugenics. I could say something very politically the word I want. Treacherous, maybe I will lose some people when I, if I were to say this. I am not surprised by the relationships between monism and Margaret Sanger. I expect that. I find it fascinating that those who support entities that promote the philosophies of Margaret Sanger, George Bernard Shaw, will accuse God of drowning babies. I find that very interesting, but predictable. Sorry for all of you people on the Internet who have now shut me off. Not really. More fake sorries. I am filled to the brim with fake sorries. I'm not sorry about my fake sorries. Back to this obvious question. Why this emphasis on physical death? That ultimately becomes my main point. I would expect a monist to be uh, particularly interested in physical death. The monistic philosophy naturally becomes, uh, after you have decided that all that there is, there is no creation, there is just this uniform process, then we are the highest... uh, pieces of that process, and therefore the only thing worthy of worship would be ourselves. We call that what? Philosophically, hedonism. The worship of self is hedonism. I would expect the hedonists to all be uniformists. And they are. Monistic philosophy, evolutionary philosophy, naturally becomes hedonism and is necessarily then preoccupied with physical death. Physical mortality is particularly traumatic for the physicalists. That's an expected thing. I read Jane Fonda. I want to know what Jane Fonda thinks. I'm a Vietnam-era person. I watch Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda was recently quoted as saying that she is weeping almost continually over her impending cessation of existence. She knows she's now in her 70s, apparently. And she's beginning to recognize something is happening to her. She's dying at an accelerated rate. In dog years, she's in trouble. Thanks for laughing. But the death of her body, you see, is the death of herself, her personhood, her self-awareness. That's what she believes. She's a monist. And she is weeping over her cessation of existence being foremost, if you will, about to be revealed. At least Miss Fonda is aware of the consequences of physical death. If monism is true, she's got it. 
If we are only a physical device and not a combination of a spiritual component and a physical device, then physical death is a traumatic event. Um, you see, the uh, God is a psychotic mass murderer argument is at it at its essence in a physical death context because they cannot stand the fact that God will take life physically on a very large level. The emphasis on the monistic side or the, or the evolutionary philosophy side is on the physical aspect, the physical component. Again, consistent with monistic reductionism. I say these terms over and over and over again so that you recognize them when you read them and you hear them. Reductionism is reducing something to a particle mass, if you will. You cannot reduce a spiritual component to a particle. Spiritual components are not particle-based. They're spiritual-based. That's why the difference here. That's why you will call them reductionists or reductionism or materialism. They don't believe that there is a spiritual reality. There is no spiritual reality. And that leads or causes the most obvious of the obvious questions now. Why did God use water? Why? Does he need to use water? But he used water. Why? Could he have used rocks? He's really good with rocks. Could he have used fire? He's really good with fire. He's really good with everything. But he uses water. We have the Noatic flood, not the Noatic firestorm. Why water? How many times has the earth been underwater? How many times has he used water? Why are we a a spiritual living soul and not just merely a physical device? Now, that may seem like more than one obvious question, but it is the same question phrased three different ways. Certainly, God did not have to use water. That's what is that? What is water? Let's just go with it. It's H2O, right? I have two hydrogens and one oxygen. Why did He use two hydrogens and one oxygen and mass quantities? God could have immediately and instantly, by by His with His mind, with His thinking process, He could have annihilated every living soul on the earth without. Two hydrogens and one oxygens in mass amounts. But he chose this is his plan. You need to know why. Why do you need to know why? People say all the time, you always say that you, I need to know. I don't need to know anything. You're absolutely right. But I think you should know. I think it's valuable for you to know. Because if you know why he used water, then you know something about him. And that's what he wants you to do. Learn about me. Learn how I think. Learn who I am. What I'm doing. Of all the methods possible, he uses water. Again, how many times? I'll give you a hint. You have to come, you internet people, to see the answer to the question. How many times? Because I'm holding up 
Well, that would give it away if I tell you that. I'm holding up something. And a, a to- How many times did he submerge the earth? I promise you Hollywood doesn't know the answer to that question. And they will get it wrong in their fantastic movie that we all have to go to. Okay, now, if you go to it, try to sneak in so that we don't, we don't benefit them. <laughs> okay. Back a second. God could have immediately, instantly annihilated every living soul on the earth. And he does do that on a small scale, if you want to think of it that way, in Armaged- at Armageddon, Revelation 19. With his mind, it says, out of his mouth. So he uses words to kill millions of, of the Antichrist army. Hundreds of millions, probably. He uses words to kill them. But here, he uses water. Why not words? What does he say, by the way? Again, why water? God calls himself the living water. How much of your body, my body, this physical body that he has made for us through his processes, how much of us is water? About 60%. Now, I have a higher fat content than, than most of you. I figured out, by the way, that duct tape will make me look younger if I just put it here. <laughs> See, it works, doesn't it? I practice. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we are 60% water. Oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, gases. That's our body, combined with carbon and calcium and phosphorus and iron and other uh, minerals mixed in. Our bodies are essentially, though, 60% Gas and dust. I'm sorry, 60% gas and the remainder dust, if you want to think of it that way. Very small amounts of dust, mostly uh, gas. Hydrogen is a gas. Oxygen is a gas. Nitrogen is a gas. Those are all gases. So when I say that you're, you're, you're gas and dust, that's exactly what we are. Just like, by the way, what else? Thank you. What else is gas and dust? The entire physical creation is gas and dust. He uses gas and dust. In this case, he uses gas and gas. He used gas and gas to separate the spiritual component from the physical device. That's what he's doing. He's separating the physical from the spiritual. Why does he do that? It must have meaning. God is spirit. It isn't arbitrary that he used two hydrogens and one oxygen. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship. That's what it says. If you worship God, you must worship him in spirit. You have to worship him with the spiritual component, not the physical component. And you have to know the truth about who he is and what he says and how he thinks, what we're supposed to believe. Spirit and the truth is the opposite of the physical reality. John 4.24. Though there are some who dispute what I'll say next, at least in part, I think the statement prevails. God has given us two great gifts. Okay, just for now, remember that gas and gas is what he used at Genesis. He's given us two great gifts. One of those is existence. 
some will say there's three gifts here, but uh, I don't raise the third up to the level that they do. Existence is a great gift. We exist. And we exist, and, and the characteristics of existence is an immortality, that, in other words, continued existence, and a free will. I've had those lectures in the, in the past. In other words, existence is continue, continual, and existence, to be existence, must contain free will. And um, as an element, how much free will uh, depends on uh, yet to be determined. But God's second great gift is salvation. Remember, I say to you all the time, He's giving you existence and he's giving you salvation. And, and they have the, a relationship. They're the two great gifts, existence and salvation. What characteristic do they have, both of them? They have an eternal characteristics. Characteristic. Existence has to have free will in order to be existence and it must be immortal. It must have eternity. It must be eternal. It must be continual. Salvation, likewise, in order to be salvation, cannot be temporary. It must also be eternal. Both of those have eternity to them. And the physicalist believes that we are random, purposeless things with only a temporal consciousness that is subject to the physical brain and emergent from the physical brain. All of that to make the point that God as spirit desires that we have the correct perspective on physical death. Physical death to the physicalist is a huge deal, a big problem, because it is the end of them. It is not. They're wrong. And the Bible says it over and over again. They don't know that. They really don't. The Bible says physical death is the end of of a temporary service for the Christian or for the believer. But it cannot end existence. And by the way, those who think that salvation can come and go and be discarded and recollected and discarded again and as many times as you want, I always ask them, how many times can you get rid of your salvation? Hundreds of thousands a day? How many times? Salvation has to be eternal. It's one of the two great gifts of God. But all of this to say that that the first death is different than the second death. Physical death and spiritual death are different. We have to have the correct perspective on physical, the the end of the physical device temporarily, our bodies. Do not fear the first death, God says in Matthew 10, 28. Do I have time to read that? I think I do. Um, I'm going to whether I have time or not. This is very important to know what he wants you to know about physical death. And listen, we're, we all have this, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, we all have this instinct, I guess, to fear death. But he says this. God says this. This is God speaking. Jesus Christ, God God himself. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him, which is 
Christ, fear me. Fear me who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Destroy does not mean annihilate. It means place into ruination. Fear me. I'm the one that can put the body and the soul. Notice the body is going with the soul. What's that mean? He has to resurrect the body and put it back together with the soul and place it in ruination. They're restored. They're confined, but they're restored. Again, destroy does not mean annihilation. Back to the first law of thermodynamics. Nothing is coming into existence or going out of existence. As God saying that to us through his law. God does not murder as murder is properly defined. God separates the living soul from the physical device. Why does he do that? Why does he use water? Well, when does he do it? That might be a better question to help you figure out why he does it. When did he do it in Genesis 6 and 7? What was going on there? We had a, we had humanity run amok. We had angelic beings, uh, contaminating and doing all kinds of supernatural things. And humanity had descended into madness. And God will do what when that happens? He will stop the madness. In this case, he used gas and gas. He gassed everybody. Ask another question. Why is there weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness? Because God says there will be wailing and gnawing of the mouth and the tongue in outer darkness, Matthew 8, 12. What causes in the outer darkness this? And by the way, where is the outer darkness? Let's just go off uh, on a tangent really fast. There's the universe. Where's the earth? Can you all see the universe? Congratulations. It's pretty big. Where's the earth? Is the earth, here's the outer darkness. There's the universe. That's all the physical creation. Where's the earth? Is it here? There's the earth. That's a really big earth there. But you get the picture. Is that where the earth is on the outside edge? Is it here? Outside edge. In other words, I have all kinds of possibilities, don't I? Because this would be, I bisect it this way, I could bisect it that way. Is it on the bisectors? By the way, how do I determine where the bisectors are? Where is the earth, do you suppose? There's a big debate uh, right now that the Bible was very clear that the earth was made before the what? Yes, the earth is sitting there way before the sun and the stars. So before the physical universe, we have the earth. He made the earth. When did he make the earth? Did he make it before he made humanity? Yes. Did he make it before he made the angelic host? Did he make the angelic host first? You have to answer all of it. Well, you don't have to, but it's a good idea. I just want to know for today, where is the earth? What subject am I entering into right now? That's right, general relativity, observation of light, time dilation, which just means the stretching of time. All these things coming up next week. But for today, you get to pick where the earth is. How many of you think it's on the outside edge? 
Nobody raised your hand. Okay, one guy. One guy raises just to be obstinate. Who thinks it's dead sinner? Wouldn't it be wild if it was dead sinner in the universe? What does that have to do with the speed of light over time, if that's the case? Albert Einstein had some ideas about stuff like that. But for today, where is the utter or the outer darkness? Why does God contain sin and rebellion in the outer darkness? Why does he do that? He has a place. It's in the outer darkness. That's where he puts sin and rebellion. He doesn't annihilate. He confines it. He allows sin to continue confined. And in that confinement, I have wailing and weeping. What is the source of the gnashing and the wailing and the weeping? Is God causing the wailing and the weeping? He's not. It's happening. He's allowing it to happen. Why does it happen? What's making the wailing and the weeping happen? Remember, God does not annihilate Evil is still continuing. Some disagree. Some insist that God will annihilate um, evil, all evil, and only uh, the uh, saved will exist. But that position does not withstand biblical scrutiny about the outer darkness or existence. So why does God allow evil? Why does he let evil run free? In the case of Genesis 6, it reached a level of unbelievable uh, uh, height. It was absolutely amok. It's going to happen again. Why does he let it run free? The physicalists can't explain it. They never get it right. They focus on physical death. They don't focus on why. And God stopped it. And and by the way, evil is running free right now, isn't it? And he's not stopping it. Is it good that he's not stopping it? I'm going to give you a perspective. I'm here because he didn't stop it. I'm glad I'm here. He gave me existence by waiting. There's little Jacob back there. All these little babies. He gave Jacob existence. I'm happy about that. I know he's going to fix the physical device. I got that. But the gift of existence is what we get. Now, if he told me I'm shutting it down on Thursday, I would be like, yay me. I got my 61 years. I'm pretty happy. Some of you didn't get a driver's license. Too bad. I don't care. Nanny, nanny, foo-foo, right? But he's not stopping evil. And by not stopping evil, what's that do? It allows his two great gifts to go on. These two great gifts are going on because he's not stopping evil yet. And when he does get it, he doesn't really stop it, does he? He puts it in the outer darkness where it what? Continues. That's how it works. He's saving When he doesn't stop evil, he's accomplishing something. He's accomplishing salvation. He's adding to his people, come to me, he says in 11.28. He keeps that invitation on the table. Okay? So that's kind of resolves that, I hope. Next week, 
as the musicians move forward. That's my clever way of telling people that you can start preparing for the buffet. Next week, we're going back to Einstein's general and special relativity. Actually, not going back. I'm introducing it. I've done it in the past. I don't remember if any of that is available. I don't know. But we'll deal with general relativity, time dilation, dilation, and more thermodynamics and more geological strata, more black body radiation. And then we'll, we'll get into the beneficial mutation of uh, natural selection theory, um, punctuated equilibria, if you will, versus the biological irreducibility and information theory. That is on the table for next week. All of that fun stuff. Now, why? Somebody's going to say God is a psychological nut job who murders people. And you're going to say, well... What do you do with the theory of relativity then? What do you do with gas, gas? What do you do with existence and salvation? What do you do with the, with substance dualism? What do you do with all of these great truths in the Bible that are contrary to your simple concept? And you'll find that they won't care. But, your kids will, your neighbors will, your friends will. Somebody will die. And you can come and say, hey, it's temporary. The Bible proves it over and over and over again. You don't have to, you don't have to fear that. Don't fear the death of the body. Whatever you do, let's rise and be dismissed.